0: Today, I am interviewing Megan Collins about The Family Plot, which is her third book. She has taught creative writing for many years at both the high school and college level and is the managing editor of Three Elements Literary Review. She lives in Connecticut. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughtsfromapage. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughtsfromapage. Check it out. Welcome, Megan. How are you today?
1: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm great, too. And I just think this is so much fun because I'm now back to like the authors that I started with when I began this podcast. So it's really fun to be talking again
1: about your next book. Yes, I've been really looking forward to this.
0: Me too. And I don't think we talked about it when we did the last interview. But last time around, you were in the middle of a storm and you had to go sit in your car outside the library to have (laughs) the Wi-Fi. So hopefully this is a little bit less stressful environment for you today.
1: The power was out last time. So today we have power and there's not a storm raging. So, so far, so good. But of course, now that I've said that, the thunder will come.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that happened to me the other day when I said something like, well, the connection's holding because then Castor had been having all this trouble. And then the next thing I knew, it went out. I was like, oh, I cursed myself. (laughs) I really enjoyed The Family Plot, and I'm looking forward to discussing it with you.
1: Thank you. This is great to hear. Absolutely. And
0: why don't you give a real quick summary for those that haven't read it yet?
1: So the family plot is about a true crime-obsessed family who gathers after about a decade apart to bury their patriarch, and they then discover upon digging up his grave in the family plot that there is already the remains of a body there, and they find out that those remains belong to their long-missing brother who disappeared 10 years ago. And they had always thought that he ran away, but now... They see that he was actually murdered with an axe and so clearly did not run away. And so the family reacts to this in a bunch of different weird ways. The mother, who throughout the children, who are all now adults, throughout their childhood, she had homeschooled them and included all these true crime, like really gruesome stories into their homeschool curriculum. She would reenact murder stories for them. And now she's reacting to her husband's death, which was of natural causes, and then the learning of her son's murder by furiously baking cookies and kind of, she's just like in the kitchen and she's like, Nope, this is what I'm doing. I'm baking cookies. And they're like, okay, that's a little weird, but okay. The sister, the old, the narrator's older sister is creating a diorama of what the crime scene would have looked like when her brother was first murdered. So the narrator's like, that's really messed up. And then the older brother, Charlie is, putting together a family memorial museum where he's taking all the what he calls artifacts of their childhood and their weird homeschool upbringing and all the things they learned about true crime and all those kind of ways that they made true crime a part of their life. And he's putting those on display and he's going to invite the whole town, which is actually this secluded island where they live. And the islanders have always talked about them and called their house murder mansion because they're very weirded out by the lifestyle that they have. And so he's, from his point of view, he's saying, okay, well, we're going to open things up and show people that we're just people too. But the narrator is seeing all these very strange reactions to her brother's death, and she's not seeing anybody who's trying to really work with the police and find out what happened to him. So she takes that upon herself. And another layer of this is that the brother that was murdered is was her twin brother. So she had a much closer bond with him than anybody else in the family. So she's going through her grief about this, but she's also desperately trying to figure out what happened to him.
0: So the entire time I was reading I am like, I cannot wait to ask Megan where in the world she came up with the idea for this story. (laughs) There are so many weird things going Mm -hmm. on. So first, how did you come up with the whole idea of being raised in this murder family where everybody's named after either a serial killer or a victim? And then how did you come up with all the things that they were doing, the diorama and the museum and the mother's mad baking? So...
1: Most of my novel ideas usually come from like the premise will stick in my head first, and I'll be really fascinated by that. And then it'll kind of all tumble out from there. But for this, it actually came from the title, which my husband had suggested it to me. I was working on something else and I was having the hardest time coming up with a title. And I said you know, I want something that points to the family aspect of it. And he just kind of threw out the family plot. And I was like, no, that does not work for this, but that is a really great title. And I just could not get it out of my head for days. And I'm trying to concentrate on this other project, but it's just still swimming around in there. And then I really like, this has never happened to me before, but the premise of it really just kind of sprung into my head out of nowhere that it was just like, All right, so they gathered to bury their father and they find a body already in the grave. And I was like, I like that. That's interesting. How can I make that more connected to them, though? If it's just any body in the grave, like, who cares? I mean, not who cares. But so I was like, okay, so maybe it's their brother who's been missing for a long time and this is the last place they expected to find him. And then I was thinking, okay, well, what kind of family would this be particularly interesting to see have happened to them? And I thought if the family was already really interested in murder and true crime and fascinated with all those things, then it would be particularly fascinating if they then became the center of a true crime themselves. And I wondered how would they react. And then I just kind of, the diorama aspect with one of the characters, Tate, she has this very popular Instagram where she does these dioramas depicting crime scenes from the island where she's from because there's actually another level of this story is that there was this serial killer that was active for a couple of decades and then hasn't been for a while and so she's always been depicting their murders and now she's turning to doing her brothers but the idea of doing a diorama thing was kind of like another story I had percolating and then when I started to realize that this family was going to be very strange and they were all going to be doing their own very weird thing I was like well this is perfect for that I'm going to bring this in over here. So it really, it came from the title. Then the premise just jumped in there. And then thinking about like, what would be the context for this that would make it most interesting?
0: The diorama thing was so creative and so creepy. (laughs) It was (laughs) like, oh, that's just terrible that all of these people are following all her dioramas. But the fascination with true crime is always sort of amazing to me because I don't really have that fascination. But I don't really have any interest, probably because I couldn't sleep if I followed it all. Yeah. I was thinking, oh, that is so creepy. But then I'm thinking also, I bet there are a lot of people that would find that fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually took, I feel like I stole the idea of the dioramas actually from, I want to get her name right, and I have it in the Acknowledgements the book, which I'm looking at now. Frances Glessner Lee, she is basically like the mother of forensic criminal stuff because she would create these nutshell crime scenes. Is that what's nutshell studies of unexplained deaths is what they were called. And she would create these little diorama crime scenes and then police would have to come in and like figure out how the person died and all the clues were there somehow, but you really had to look at every single detail to figure it out. So I when I learned about that, I was fascinated by it. I also love miniatures, so like this was combining both my interest in true crime and and that sort of thing and my interest in tiny things. So I was really drawn to that, and so I wanted Tate to do kind of like a more modern day spin on that and something that was very personal to her.
0: Well, I thought it was very interesting. And then same with the serial killer aspects of it. So how did you research that? Maybe this was something you already knew a lot about, or did you have to go research the various serial killers and then decide whose names you were going to use and how you would incorporate that into the story?
1: Yeah, so basically if anybody was looking at my search history while I was writing this book, they would have been very, very disturbed, either worried about me or that I was going to do something. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I would just like, I would kind of get to a spot in the writing. I tend not to do a lot of research before I start writing something because I don't want it to skew where I'm going to go because I'm never doing like anything historical or thing like that. So for me, I kind of just try to start with the characters and, and follow their journey. And then when I need information, I look it up, I do some research. So it was kind of just a lot of pieces along the way. I would get to a point where I'm like, okay, I need to have a reference to some serial killer that they learned about or whatever it is, some murder story. And so I would just browse the internet and look up on all these sites until I found one that felt like it was right for that moment. Although I do have a fair amount of knowledge of true crime stories myself, so I was able to rely on that too when creating those moments.
0: So did you sometimes feel like you were just truly steeped in the middle of all of that? Where it was impacting your thoughts and your dreams and things, or where are you able to kind of separate it out?
1: I feel like my I'm so the thing about true crime and my own fascination with it, and something that I wanted to bring into this book is that when you steep yourself, I've found in true crime, and you're watching all the documentaries and you're listening to all the podcasts and all of that, it is very hard to see the world as a safe place ever. And so like I always tell people, and it's like half joke, half like completely real, that I never answer the door if the doorbell rings and I'm not expecting someone because I'm sure it's going to be a murderer. And people try to tell me, you know, murderers don't usually ring the doorbell. (laughs) But I'm like, nope, it's a murderer. I am not going there. And that's something that I wanted to bring to the main character in this book, that one of her kind of defining characteristics is that she doesn't really trust anybody. And the only person she ever trusted was her twin brother, who she's now lost. And a lot of that is because she was she grew up with this lifestyle of learning all the ways that people can be hurt and all the ways that can come kind of out of nowhere. So she's she just sees the world as a place that is where these things happen, and that's just natural. And so therefore, she's not going to get super close to anybody. So when I was writing all of that, it just kind of reinforced kind of the thing that that happens to me naturally when I steep myself in a lot of true crime. And I sometimes have to take breaks from that because it is so dark and it gets you kind of into this mindset. But at the same time, and it was really weird because I was writing this book during the pandemic and, you know, it had just started and 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 the world was so different all of a sudden, so this world that I had created that was like a familiar darkness and not the one that we were currently living was sort of this weird escape that, I don't know, it was, kind of, it was a strange comfort in a way. So it's hard to say whether it really like disturbed me to be writing it or if it helped me. It was kind of a little bit of both. Writing
0: during the pandemic had to be stressful enough anyway, because there's just all of this other stuff going on and mm-hmm. it's hard not to have that distracting you. So like you said, maybe diving into a world that you are comfortable with Mm -hmm. and that is, even if it's creepy, isn't going to bother you as much. Plus, you're not going to have many people ringing your doorbell early on in the pandemic.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was a bonus. I was like, no worry about murders at the door. Exactly. (laughs) I always
0: feel like that one of the reasons I would not ever be able to really immerse myself in true crime is exactly what you are describing, Mm -hmm. that I would be looking at every single person I encountered with suspicion. And then I also would just never sleep. For some reason, it's just not something that draws me in, but Mm -hmm. I think I'm definitely in the minority. There is such a following for all of that stuff.
1: There is. And something I wanted to explore in this book was what is it about true crime that just fascinates some people. What is it about it that sickens other people? Because the people in town on their island are definitely more of those kind of people who are like, no, I'm going to stay away from that. And the family represents people fascinated, people always immersing themselves in true crime. And so I wanted to look at what does that do to a person? How does it serve a person sometimes? How does it actually help them? And then in other ways, of course, how does it end up hurting them? And so that's something that I definitely use this book to look at.
0: That's a very interesting idea, too, to sort of investigate how it can help and hurt. Mm-hmm. And I think, yes, different characters sort of portray that. You have some wonderful twists and turns, and obviously this is spoiler-free, so I'm not going mm-hmm. to comment on them specifically. But were those set out for you in the beginning? Like, did you sit down and say, I know that this is going to be the resolution for this, and This is going to be the case, actually? Or as you were writing, did some of them come about?
1: I always have to know the ending when I start writing, or even when I just start plotting. I have to know where I'm heading to in order to kind of fill in the spaces in between. And once I know what the ending is and where I want them to get to, I then kind of figure out okay, well, what will the midpoint be? What's the thing that's going to be revealed at that point, or the thing that's going to happen? that shakes up these characters even more. That's an important turning point for them. So once I have that midpoint, then I kind of fill in from beginning to middle and then middle to the end according to like okay, how do I ratchet up to this and then how do I get down to the ending. It was interesting though this was the first time that I rewrote so much of the book in doing the edits with my editor. We realized just something about the midpoint in particular was not working and it had set up the second Half of the book to kind of lose a lot of the momentum that it had had in the first. And so it ended, once I did the revision, it ended up ending the same way, but I had then chosen a different midpoint and kind of delayed some reveals. And it ended up working a lot better because my editor is always right, of course. <laughs> and so, so this was the first time where a book that I wrote, the places where I thought the twists and things would happen ended up being shifted and new twists came in pretty late into the process, which was really interesting because it it was like, like basically writing a new book in the revision process.
0: There's so many different threads in the story mm-hmm. and they all work together beautifully. Like I never felt confused or like there was too much happening, but there is a lot happening. And so trying to have all of that tie in together, I felt must have been a lot for you.
1: I... Constantly think about this book as like and everything but the kitchen sink in terms of things that fascinate me and things that I love in crime fiction. So I've got the serial killer aspect. I have the creepy old mansion that this family lives in. The secluded island setting that's on the ocean, obviously with the island. The true crime aspect, the dioramas, yeah, and cookies. I love cookies and the mom's baking cookies. So yeah, there were so many elements. There's like a creepy neighbor situation. There's so many things that I was just pulling from things that I love in crime fiction and thrillers, and then I was like, okay, I've got a piece all together. And it was kind of a challenge because as you're writing one thing, you kind of start to build momentum on that, and then you're like, oh wait, I have this other element that I do have to thread in. So that's really where the revision process comes into is making sure that all of those elements are balanced and all of them are in some way working toward the same thing and pushing the characters and getting them to this place they need to get to.
0: Right. They were all working in tandem to get to the ending, but there were a number of them. So I thought, oh, this is fascinating. This must have taken a lot of planning.
1: I start with a very detailed outline. And then before I write each chapter, I outline the chapter. So it's almost like I'm writing these things like two or three times before I actually officially draft them. So a lot of that work also happens there too, is making sure all those things are coming together in the planning stages.
0: Makes perfect sense. Well, you know me in covers, and the very second that I saw you reveal this cover, I was like, oh, this is just (laughs) fantastic. It is just an outstanding cover. Do you just love it?
1: I love it so much. It's, I mean, I've had really good luck with my covers in the past, but this is definitely my favorite. The first moment I saw it, it just it works so well with so many of the elements of the story the like icy it has like an icy blue color scheme kind of that to me sort of evokes the november setting and just like the coldness of that and the it's like this little house inside of a bell jar so that's kind of a diorama in its way and in the house you see the window lit up and somebody there and there's this character in the novel who is known by the narrator as the watcher because she was always watching them. And there's also the sense that everybody on the island was always watching them and making their opinions on them. And so the cover just beautifully shows that isolation and kind of the claustrophobia. And so I'm just so happy that it's, it's aesthetically beautiful, but it also relates thematically so well to the book. It truly does.
0: You talked a little bit about the title. Your husband came up with that title. Yes. And I think it works really well, too.
1: Yeah. I As soon as I heard the family plot, when he said that, that really struck me was because, well, you can take that two ways. You can take that as the family plot graves or a family who has plotted something or a family who has secrets going on. And so definitely everybody in this book has some secrets. And- Dahlia, the main character in particular, is suspicious of everybody, and she's not sure if she can even trust her family. So yeah, so I loved the way that it had that double meaning. Me too. Well, what about what you're working on now? So right now, I am working on my fourth novel, and it's about two really, really close sisters-in-law who are like best friends, and their bond is tested for the first time when the man that unites them, so the husband of one, the brother of the other, becomes the prime suspect in this really high-profile murder. And at first, they're like, of course, this cannot be true. We're going to work together and prove that he did not do this. Because meanwhile, he's also, another element of the story is that he is in a medically induced coma after an accident. And it was during the accident that the police found evidence in his car tying him to the murder. So, the sisters-in-law are like, no, he's being framed, he's being set up. And so they start investigating. And the more they investigate, the more they start to veer in their opinion on what happened. And one starts to doubt his innocence, actually. And that kind of creates a wedge between them. And then they have to figure out, you know, who's right in this situation. I'm
0: always so curious how your ideas come to you.
1: (laughs) I mean, for that one, I actually started with the relationship between the sisters-in-law. And I just had this like image of these two very close sisters-in-law who were more like best friends than related legally, I guess. And so I was like, okay, and what could be a thing that could drive a wedge between them and add tension to their story? And then all the other stuff kind of started spilling in.
0: Do you have a notebook where you write down ideas as they come to you? Or do you pretty much have the one idea get it made into a book, you know, get it written and have it out there and then start with a new idea?
1: I have a, a note in my notes app dedicated to book ideas. And some of them are really interesting, I think. And then some of them are just like a couple goes to a cabin, something happens and it's like, okay, that's not a premise at all. But I, so I have, I always, as I'm writing I'll just think of something else, and so I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I don't have the time or the space to do anything with that right now, but I just kind of put it down and then later go back to it and see if it still interests me or not. Actually, for all of my books so far, the ideas for them came after I had finished the other book. So a lot of times I do have these these ideas, but then I get like a new spark of something once I actually have that space to devote to finding something new.
0: Well, it is hard when you're immersed in one book. You want to stay in that world and not kinda of confuse yourself yeah. by starting to think about the next one. Right, exactly. It's gotta be hard enough to be promoting this one and then be trying to write the next one.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a lot. And it's, you know, even even doing things like this this interview like I spent all morning immersed in the new book that I'm writing, and then to have to think, Okay, no, now I'm talking about the family plot and you know, that's something I wrote last year and so The nature of publishing, it takes a while for us to actually get to the point of launching the book. So it's a really great thing because, you know, when you're in the drafting process, it can feel so messy and it can feel like you're never going to reach the end and that it's going to be impossible. But then I can sit here and talk to you about this book that I know I finished and I know I got it to a place where I feel good about it and I feel proud of it. So it's like, okay, I can do this. And it's that great reminder (laughs) right when I need it.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. That's a good point it kind of gives you comfort. Like, I know I've done this three times now. I know this will get where I want it. It may just take a little bit.
1: Yeah. Even though, of course, in the moment of drafting, it's like, no, it's impossible. I know I can never do it again, but I'm sure I said that every single time.
0: I will never write another book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what about what you have read and loved? What would you recommend?
1: Oh, I just recently read Where the Truth Lies by Anna Bailey. And that's coming out August 3rd or 4th, whichever is the Tuesday, I'm not sure. And that's a book under my publisher, Atria. And it's just so incredible. It's kind of like everything I never told you meets a little bit like Mayor of Easttown in that there's this very small town vibe and a lot of like secrets among the people. It's just about this 17 year old girl who goes missing and how that reverberates out throughout all the townspeople. And also like they're trying to solve what happened, but it is so exquisitely written and the story, the characters are so fascinating and so layered. And it's just like, it's, it's impossible to pick it up and only read like five or 10 pages. Like you just need to keep gulping it down. It was so beautiful. What's the name of that one again? Where the Truth Lies.
0: Where the Truth
1: Lies. Okay, and who's it by? Anna Bailey. Okay,
0: I haven't seen that, I don't think. But sometimes I say that and then I look up a book and I'm like, oh, I have seen it. I just, (laughs) I'm so visual, so. Yeah. Okay, good, well, I'm gonna have to look for that one.
1: Yes, it's so good. And then I just read, I mean, it feels redundant to recommend this book at this point because Reese already did this month, but the Paper Palace, Reese Witherspoon's new book club pick, I really wanted it. I knew it took place in Cape Cod, and I usually go to Cape Cod every summer, but I didn't last summer and this summer. And so I just wanted to escape into that. And it was such a beautiful story. And I am totally blanking on the author's name right now, but it's everywhere right now. So Miranda something. (laughs) Yes, Miranda. Like it's a two name last name. That's not helpful, but.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll look it up. (laughs) Any others, or is there anything that you're wanting to start that you haven't yet?
1: Uh, Yes, I got Animal by Lisa Tadeo. I loved her three women nonfiction book that she had out a couple years ago. And so this is her first fiction book, and I'm so excited to read it. But I'm also, I feel like I'm holding off from reading it because it's just like, I'm so excited about it. And I know once I read it, I won't have that to be excited about anymore. And so It's just kind of taunting me on my shelf, but I sort of like that. I got the newest, the latest Tana French book back in October when it first came out, and I still haven't read it, even though it's been almost a year, because I'm like, no, because once I read that book, I don't have another Tana French book to read until she comes out with another one. So I'm always doing these weird things to myself.
0: (laughs) I have been doing that about Amor Toll's new book, The Lincoln Mm. Highway because A Gentleman in Moscow is one of my all-time favorite reads. And Mm -hmm. so I'm like, oh, okay, I really want to get this one, but then I don't want to get through it and be done. And the same thing you're describing. And I'm like, and I hope it holds up okay compared to A Gentleman in Moscow. Mm -hmm. So I need to start it, but I have been kind of putting that off.
1: Yeah. And now I'm starting to think like the Tana French book, like I'm like, okay, well that feels like a good fall read vibe. So now I'm like, I can't even start it until September late September, October. And so I'm just, I just keep finding new ways to put it off.
0: (laughs) She'll have another new book out before you start this one. (laughs) Which would be great because I'm like,
1: now I can read this and it doesn't matter if I get through it in two days.
0: (laughs) Exactly. The pressure is off. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. It was really fun to speak with you again.
1: Oh, thank you so
0: much. This was really great. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, Please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode and I hope you'll tune in next time.